in there? Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. To the No Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the dark forces which surround us. I'd like to make you aware of a horror podcast which many of you will enjoy. The creators of Theater of Tomorrow present a micro horror podcast, The Hotel. Check in at the front desk with the manager. Let the lobby boy take your bags. And if you're very lucky, you won't meet the owner or the dark being he reports to. Listen each week as the hotel takes on a different shape and the guests are killed in fantastic and horrific ways. Season 2 releases throughout September as the hotel takes the form of the worst Airbnb imaginable. There's worse than just ghosts in these rooms. Our very own Graham Rowett stars alongside Mark Witten, Kelly Nineltowski, and Krista Lewis. Weekly horror with no checkout times. You can find a link in the show notes, so make sure your summer vacations include a stay at the hotel. But before you check into the hotel, we have stories now to bring right to your room. How's that for service? So turn down the lights and grab the remote because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a young girl who regularly helps her mom out with her daily tasks. This isn't any standard take-your-daughter-to-work initiative, though. Mom's job is a little unconventional. According to her, she's been tasked by God to rid the world of monsters that hide inside of men. In this tale, shared with us by author Paul DeCumba, we find out the true nature of these monsters. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Sarah Thomas, and Mike Delgadio. So it's off to work we go with a strange crusader and her mama's girl. behind a bar called The Shortstop. Waiting in the dark, under the buzzing sign, we watched a wobbly-legged man come stumbling out across the parking lot. Is he a monster? Nope. The one I want is still inside. Mama picked at her hair, making it big and beautiful. I crouched down behind the dumpster that smelled like greasy chicken, cigarettes, and mayonnaise. My back hurt, so I reached back and scratched where it burned. On the other side of the dumpster, our clunky Fairmont rumbled next to a gross pyramid of shimmery black trash bags. 
A new man came out of the bar whistling. I couldn't see him yet. Mama did the sign of the cross over her heart. Don't you move until I say it's okay to come out. You hear? Yes, Mama. About three weeks ago, Mama pulled me out of the third grade in a panic. She said God told her that some people have a monster squirming around inside their body, hiding in between the guts, waiting to hurt regular people, and that we were going on a mission to save their souls from eternal damnation. One night, after we saved an old woman behind an all-night supermarket, I asked her if I had a monster growing inside of me, too. She grabbed my arm and squeezed it hard. Yes, Lillian. I can smell it growing inside you. That's when my back started hurting. Mama applied a smear of red lipstick. She had a way about her that made men get stupid. I had never seen one yet who wouldn't follow her wherever she wanted to go. A scary forest grew up past the chain-link fence bordering the parking lot. The trees creaked back and forth like slow wagging fingers. I hugged my knees closer to my chest. Be fast. But what I thought was, please don't come back. Mama disappeared around the corner, already sweet-talking the man. I sat there listening to her be flirty, wishing I could run away. Clouds of bugs danced crazy circles in the Fairmont's headlights. If I was quick enough, maybe I could have climbed over that fence and dashed off between the creaky trees. Then there would be no more cutting, no more mission, no more dead people. It's just right over here, hon. Mama's long spiky heels clicked on the pavement. I would watch what happened right up until I couldn't stand it anymore. Mama rounded the corner. The man laughed at something Mama said. His voice sounded familiar. I poked my head out from behind the dumpster and snuck a closer look at his face. He had a big toothy smile, curly black hair, and shiny belt buckle in the shape of a ram's horns. My stomach heaved like I'd swallowed bitter medicine. I knew the man. Mr. Hobbs, my second grade teacher from the year before. Mr. Hobbs, who always gave our class an extra snack after recess, even if we hadn't earned one. My mouth went dry and my fingers got all tingly. I shuffled back behind the dumpster, covered my ears, squeezed my eyes shut, and made myself as small as I could get. I wanted to disappear. Mama slithered an arm around Mr. Hobbs' waist. The spare's right there in the trunk, sweetie. How could Mr. Hobbs have a monster inside his body? He wasn't even evil. He would never hurt anyone. I even saw him save a spider once, picked it up with a piece of yellow construction paper, and put it outside of the classroom. He told the class that the little spider had one life just like the rest of us, and that it was a sin to kill it for no good reason. Ah, well, it's, uh... (laughs) It's no problem at all, ma'am. But the words came out all blurry and slushy, and he wobbled. He hadn't recognized Mama, either. The two of them walked back to the car, Mama hanging on him like they were glued together. And then, easy as you please, she slipped away, leaving Mr. Hobbs swaying back and forth, head inside the hungry mouth of the trunk. I thought about that hammer waiting on the other side of the car, hidden behind the rear tire. I didn't want to see what came next because the wet thunking sound made me think of smashing watermelons. I used to like watermelons. I clutched my eyes even tighter and waited for the thunk. Except I couldn't keep my eyes shut, not for Mr. Hobbs. 
Before I knew what I was doing, I jumped out from behind the dumpster. No, Mama! Mama still looked in the shadows on the other side of the car, but Mr. Hobbs saw me. At first he seemed confused, but then he smiled. Uh, Lily Ann? What on God's earth are you doing here? I started to say something to warn him, but by then Mama had the hammer raised up behind his head, and I ended up shutting my eyes after all. I wriggled loose of the snug seat belt and pushed my head back between the seats to see if I could still hear Mr. Hobbs struggling in the trunk, but all I heard was the rumble of the road and the whoosh of the desert whipping by. I wanted to tell Mr. Hobbs that everything was going to be okay, even though I knew it wasn't. I twisted back around. Mama, how come I've never actually seen one of the monsters? It was true. When it came time for Mama to save the people from the creatures living inside their bodies, she sent me away to hide someplace where I couldn't see her cut them out. Mama stared straight ahead, bug-eyed, chewing the inside of her cheek. She scared me, and I knew I had to be careful, choose the right words. That part isn't for children. Don't worry, Mama will keep you safe. I won't let it happen to you. I'll think of something. I stretched all the way forward so I could see over the dashboard. The Fairmont's headlights only went so far, and then there was nothing but the deep, dark desert all around. Another thud came from the trunk, and I flinched. I don't want to hurt Mr. Hobbs. I've told you before, Lillian. I do my part. God cleans up after I'm done. Will God help Mr. Hobbs? Quiet now. Let me drive. After a bit, Mama pulled off the road. Pebbles and grit spit up behind the Fairmont. She skidded to a dusty stop in a clearing. Stay put. You interfere with me again, there will be hell to pay. She slammed her door. When she popped the trunk, the hinges squealed. Mr. Hobbs started begging for his life right away. Lily Ann! Lily Ann, please! Please help me! Quiet down! Mama pulled him flapping and whimpering from the trunk. Usually, I listen to Mama, but hearing Mr. Hobbs beg like that, I just couldn't. Even if I got the worst whipping of my life, I pushed the heavy door open with my foot. Lillian, what did I just say? You'll stay in that damn car, girl, if you know what's good for you. A trail of shiny black blood painted the ground behind Mr. Hobbs as Mama dragged him by his cowboy boots to the front of the Fairmont's headlights so she could get to work. She dropped him and his legs hit the ground with a meaty thud. Then she knelt and rolled him over on his back. His head lolled and leaked stuff that looked like strawberry jam. Mama, you have to stop. I made myself as big as I could. I heard once that was what you were supposed to do if you ran into a bear in the woods. It was meant to frighten them off. Mama scared me way worse than any bear ever could. Mr. Hobbs twisted his neck all around in the dirt. His eyes rolled back, white and glassy. Lillian! Mama pulled her K.A. bar from her jacket. The blade flashed in the headlights. Go back to the car! Now! She pointed at me with the knife. My whole body clenched, but I didn't go back into the car. I remembered in school Mr. Hobbs used to keep a picture of his daughter wearing a pony sweater on his desk. I imagined her waiting for him at home. Can't we take him to a hospital? Maybe the doctors can take the monster out. 
That's not how this works, Lillianne. Mama ripped open Mr. Hobbs' western shirt. The pearl buttons jumped up like popcorn. She put the point of the blade right at the soft spot between his ribs. Please, Mama, just this once, can we leave him be? She shook her head. Sweat dripped off her nose and splattered on Mr. Hobbs' pale chest. She did another sign at the cross, mumbled a prayer, then jabbed the blade through his flesh, pressing deep. I screamed. My throat burned with bile. Mr. Hobbs swiped at Mama, but she just pushed his weak hands away and continued, sawing back and forth with the serrated edge. I covered my ears, trying to block out the ugly sounds. Grunting, Mama worked the blade, slitting him to his waist. Blood burbled over his sides like chocolate syrup spilling down a sundae. Mr. Hobbs choked up pink foam, and then he stopped moving at all. I ran to the back of the Fairmont, climbed up the slippery chrome bumper, and reached down into the deep trunk until I found the sticky hammer. Some curly hairs hung off the claw. Mama left Mr. Hobbs leaking in the dirt and rushed over, grabbing me as I rounded the taillight. She shook me by the shoulder so hard I dropped the hammer and bit my tongue. I tasted salty pennies. What are you doing? Her bottom lip trembled. She held me so tight I couldn't move. Going against Mama made me feel scared and sick in the pit of my stomach, but kind of strong, too. Mr. Hobbs doesn't have a monster inside him. I don't think anybody does. She slapped me across the face. Tears blurred up my vision. My cheek felt hot and electric like a sunburn. She dug her nails into my arm right through the skin. You're a liar. You hurt all those people. Mama stared straight through like I was a ghost. I'm not lying, Lillianne. She grabbed the hammer from where it landed in the dirt and forced it into my hands, wrapping her fingers around mine. She pointed the hammer at Mr. Hobbs. That man isn't your teacher. Not anymore. I tried to rip my hands free, pulling and squirming, but she didn't bulge. She touched our sweaty foreheads together. You want to see? Okay, I'll let you see. She whipped me back around. Watch. Right then, Mr. Hobbs started to shake, flopping around like a walleye on a dock. He opened his mouth real wide. With one hand wrapped around my right side, keeping the hammer in my grip, Mama used her free hand to grab me by the hair. She pushed me towards Mr. Hobbs' squirming body. I twisted, grinding my feet in the dirt. Wait, Mama, I believe you. I don't want to see it. She yanked on my scalp. I yelped like a chihuahua and shut up right quick. We stopped a few feet in front of Mr. Hobbs and Mama pushed me down on the top of my head, forcing me to my knees. Don't you dare close your eyes. Mr. Hobbs' stomach bubbled. The knife slit puckered. Something shifted from inside him. It smelled worse than the garbage. Then a shape poked through the slit. I screamed again and Mama shook me. Quiet! She had my hair by the roots and wouldn't let go no matter how much I cried. We squeezed the sweaty hammer together. It felt so heavy in my hands. Watch! Here it comes! I wanted to close my eyes tight like I always did when it got to be more than I could handle, but I couldn't make them shut. Smoke rose from his open chest. A skinny arm, as white and slimy as a peeled hard-boiled egg, reached up out of Mr. Hobbs' belly and clutched at the empty air with long, spidery fingers. 
My own chest felt like a hornet's nest that had been poked with a broom handle. I thrashed against Mama. You see, Lillianne, I don't know where they come from. I just have to stop as many as I can from getting through. Another hand followed the other and grabbed a fistful of rubbery belly skin. The air stank like an outhouse and morning breath and things I couldn't name. Mama let go of my hair and grabbed the hammer and together we raised it high above my head. Not yet. A wide, wet face the color of a grub appeared between two arms. Large fish eyes blinked back at me. Hot pee ran down my leg and soaked my sock. The creature noticed, smiled a million needle teeth at me. The desert spun in circles. I fought against Mama's grip, but that only made her hold on tighter. The creature wiggled back and forth, pulling itself from the cottage cheese stomach. Bits of Mr. Hop stuck to its flesh. Not yet. The creature lurched forward and spilled onto the ground like a newborn calf sliding out of its mother. Mama put her lips to my ear, breathed her warm, ripe breath down my neck. Get ready, Lillianne. Don't let go. Uncurling itself, the grinning creature clawed into the dirt and began crawling towards us. Its legless body ended right after its ribcage in a short, thumbish nub that slapped against the ground, sending up dust. Keep coming, devil. I don't want to be here. The creature hopped forward and touched the toe of my sneakers. My body went ice cold. Now! We swung hard. The creature grabbed the hammer and yanked it out of her hands like we were nothing and plugged it into the desert. It rose in front of us and swayed, smiling, rocking its head from side to side. Mama shoved me to the right and I fell to the ground. <coughs> Run, Lillian! I didn't know where to go. I scrambled in the dirt, searching for the hammer. I turned in time to see the creature lunge at Mama and force her onto her back. She looked at me, her eyes wild with terror as the creature bit into her throat. Run! I didn't know where the hammer landed, but I had to help Mama. I wanted to smash the creature until there was nothing left for God to do. The creature shook Mama by the neck like a dog with a rabbit. Bones snapped, saliva drooled from the creature's mouth and sizzled on Mama's skin. She stared at me with huge eyes, but she couldn't scream. And then she was gone. The creature let go of her throat and slithered off to the side, revealing the stringy insides of Mama's ruined neck. Lillian? The words sounded just like Mama, but they were coming from the creature's mouth. I stood there too terrified to move. No feelings. I was just a girl-shaped thing. The creature began to writhe in the dirt, all the while keeping its dull eyes fixed on me. The abdominal nub got longer. Legs formed and snaked out along the ground. The creature's skull twisted and shifted, reshaping into something new. The fish eyes sunk back into the black cavity and the fresh human ones took their place. Green, just like Mama's. I backed away as the creature became my mother. After it finished, it stood naked and shivering in the headlights of the Fairmont and dressed itself in my mama's clothes. The creature didn't make any move toward me. Instead, it stumbled to the driver's side of the car and slid into the seat. At first, it didn't do a thing, just sat there, letting the engine idle. Then it reached over and pushed the passenger drawer open with the rusty creak. Come, Lillian. My chest lurched. Something moved deep in my back where it always hurt. 
Its smile looked no different from Mama's old smile, back before she got mean, back when she used to be happy. I took a few steps towards the door. You aren't her. I know that. The Mama creature grinned. Her mouth was a little too wide. It padded the seat. I climbed up into the passenger side. Then the Mama creature reached over my lap and pulled the door shut. Its hair brushed my arms and I got goose pimples. The car smelled like a bait shop. We drove away, leaving Mr. Hobbs and Mama for the coyotes and all the other scavengers. My new Mama had so many things to teach me about this world and all the others. I was a slow learner at first, but we had nothing but time. The shower is a good place to contemplate things and get your head straight. Step under those hot jets and the sleep of the night before washes right off, preparing you for your day. That's where we join David, the main character of this tale shared with us by author Ryan Carter. But as we soon learn, the thoughts and observations he begins making during his morning shower soon take a turn for the alarming. Performing this tale with me is Kyle Akers. So come join us in the bathroom to get cleaned up and listen to our shower thoughts. David awoke to the cold air of his bedroom his cell phone alarm blaring. It played something orchestral, something with a lot of violins, something nice to wake up to. After countless early mornings, the sound of it made him slightly nauseated. The time was 5.25 a.m. He quickly silenced the alarm and unlocked his phone, disabling the others set for 5.30 and 5.35. He didn't remember silencing the one set for 5.15. He lay himself back down under the covers, retreating from the cold. His eyes burned. He wanted to yawn, but felt like his whole body might deflate if he did. Had he left the window open? He couldn't remember, but all the same, it was open. The temperature had dropped something fierce overnight. At least he didn't have to worry about any bugs getting in. The screen was missing, which was a pain in summer, but not an issue in autumn. His old roommate, Eric, had smashed out the screen to toss him his keys once. Why he didn't just come down and let him in, he'd never know. Eric apparently hadn't known either. I don't know, was the aloof answer he got. The lamp was still on too. What had he been doing before going to bed? He'd been up too late for a 7am start, he knew that much. David's eyes burned and he fought back a yawn. He brushed his hand across his twin mattress, enjoying the softness of the sheet, until it bumped against an old paperback. It was probably bookmarked on the same page it had been for days. So much for reading in bed. He jolted himself back up again. 
Resting his eyes started to feel like an increasingly bad idea. 7 a.m. start. He pushed himself out of bed and slid the window shut before plodding out of his room into the hallway, walking over old mail, dishes, dirty laundry, and other random clutter that he'd be upset to find so neglected if he'd bothered to give the pile a second glance. The hall connected to another bedroom, unoccupied, the living room, and a small bathroom. It was a bigger apartment than he needed, and he wasn't going to be able to afford it for long. With nobody in his life to spend it on, his savings had actually been pretty decent. It was enough to get by for the next month or so, but not much more. Eric had moved out suddenly and unceremoniously, stiffing him with his share of this month's rent. In his bedroom, he left behind some large, beaten-up boxes that smelled musty and looked like they'd been stored in a damp place. David did wonder if some of his more valuable things had up and left with Eric, but over the last three weeks he still hadn't remembered to have a serious look. He only remembered to check when he wasn't home. He entered the bathroom, flicking on the light and the ceiling fan together. It smelled faintly of mildew, something he'd gotten so used to that he never noticed. After relieving himself, he shed his worn boxers and entered the shower. He always remembered his father's mantra about how a shower should only take five minutes, but like many mornings before, he set the water hot and sat down in the tub with his arms on his knees, head down, just staring at the water running off his body and into the drain. Just a few minutes. He knew in the back of his mind that a half hour or more sitting like that could pass by very easily. But with only a day and a half to switch up his sleep schedule from nights to days, he was exhausted. His job was monotonous and dragged out his days. Calling it security felt a bit like a joke to him. He was babysitting a building. It sounded like easy work, but the rotations of nights and days of his schedule was insufferable. He got barely any human contact and was barred from doing anything on downtime but reading books. The last time he'd picked up a book by choice was when he was a kid, but he was desperate to pass the time. The nights were a little easier. He'd usually stay up all night and sleep until afternoon anyway, but pushing it until 7am for numerous nights, only to work days soon after, he couldn't stand it. Regularly sleeping the daylight hours away was too much even for him, and he could never get himself to bed early enough to work for the mornings. His head was still lolled forward. He liked to imagine himself entranced by the water running down the drain. Maybe if he imagined hard enough, he really would be stuck in place. But he knew he could get up at any point he wanted to. It felt good to just sit in the warmth of the shower. But oddly, he never fell asleep in it. Even during the really bad mornings where he curled in the fetal position and did his best to ignore the discomfort of water filling his ear. David almost laid down then, before wondering how much time had passed. It felt like it had been a while, but not too long. Ten minutes, maybe? Surely not longer than that. He yawned deeply again, closing his eyes so hard that they ached a little. He put his hands on the side of the tub, and in a forced burst of energy, he stood back up. He grabbed the bar of soap and made short work of scrubbing himself with it. His mind wandered, trying to relish his remaining time in this last comfortable space between bed and the outside world. 
He grabbed the shampoo and scrubbed his hair for only a few seconds before putting his head under the stream, the rushing water and dispersing suds drowning out all noises. With a brief moment of resignation, he turned off the taps. He stood there for a moment, the bathroom silent except for some residual drops from the tap faintly echoing in the drain. Didn't I turn the fan on? He was almost positive he had, but its hum was a white noise that blended with the running water so well that it was possible he never realized until now he'd left it off. The silence was disquieting. Perplexed, he started to reach for the edge of the curtain. David froze. The fan hadn't simply started up again, as if the motor had stalled or something. He was positive he heard the switch on the wall flip back on. Taking a step back, he glanced upward over the curtain rod at the fan's grate. There was a lot of condensation on the ceiling around it, enough to give the barest reflection. Was that a dark shape swaying slowly back and forth? He leaned back onto the wall of the shower, biting his hand unconsciously. Whoever it was, were they waiting for him to come out? Did they know he knew they were there? Uh, forgot to wash my hair. He tried his best to sound like someone talking to himself, like it was something he always did when nobody else was around. Quickly, he turned the water back on. He couldn't think of what else to do. After a few deep breaths, he settled his nerves a little. Adrenaline gave him some focus. How did someone break into his place? He always checked the lock more than once before bed, and he would have heard the door get kicked in. He didn't have a balcony, and his apartment was on the fifth floor anyway. Had Eric returned his key? Uh, He could have sworn he had, but maybe he didn't. Or maybe he'd squirreled a copy away to sneak back in. David began to flush with outrage, suppressing his terror for the moment. Why would he break in just to linger around in the bathroom like a creep? David checked the condensation on the ceiling. The shape was still there. He always was a weirdo. Eric, stop fucking around. What are you doing here? He hoped the sudden challenge would catch him off guard. Despite the hum of the fan, he was certain of what he heard. It sounded like the wind whistling through a crack in glass, and it chilled David despite the warmth of the shower. Whoever or whatever was outside the curtain, it wasn't Eric. His chest started to feel tight, his breathing becoming short. What the hell is going on? He rubbed his eyes. He started to feel dizzy, reality losing focus the more he retreated into his own thoughts. He wished he had the fortitude to just rush out and face what was out there, but he couldn't will himself to do it. There was something inhuman standing there, just beyond a flimsy, waterproof curtain. He just knew it, and there was nothing he could do about it. David slid down the wall until he was sitting, his knees bent a little uncomfortably close to his chest. It wouldn't have felt right sitting sideways in the tub under normal circumstances, but he couldn't take his eyes away from the curtain. It was a benign beige, no menacing silhouette, no strange movements. Maybe if he sat long enough, whatever it was would just go away. The thing outside the shower just became a fact for him, a miserable fact that threatened to cut his life short for good.
Suddenly, his dismal job didn't sound so bad. Spending his free time at home with nobody for company felt a lot more secure than it did lonely. There were friends he should check in with, catch up. It was so easy these days, but he never bothered. It would be so easy if only he could get out of the shower. Thinking about its voice, he imagined something as thin as a rake, with grey flesh shrunken against a skeletal frame, unkempt hair and limbs too long for its body. Had it snuck in through his window, or was it some sort of phantom? Life doesn't prepare you for stuff like this. He inhaled deeply, gaining some composure. He thought he caught some whiffs of an earthy smell he hadn't noticed before. What could he do now? There was no longer hiding. He'd just spoken to whatever was there. It knew he was in here. What was it waiting for? As he anticipated the worst, eyes never leaving the drab curtain, he began to wonder where this thing could have come from. His window had been open, but was height a concern for it? He imagined its form snaking into his bedroom while he slept, lurking in a dark corner of his room as he got up, unmoving and unseen. The thought made his stomach twist into knots. He tried to picture it skulking into Eric's old room instead. His eyes glazed over as he retreated into his thoughts, not noticing that the lights were, at that moment, imperceptibly getting dimmer. Eric's old room. He had always been strange, into candles and weird goth shit. David thought of the surreal figurines he used to collect and the musty books littering his room. He remembered the blaring metal music he couldn't understand. He'd never paid his quirks that much mind before. They'd only started rooming together because David was between jobs and couldn't afford a place by himself. He found Eric's ad looking for a roommate online. Eric was friendly enough when he first moved in, mostly keeping to himself, but became more of a recluse in the months leading up to his sudden departure. After finding work, David's schedule didn't help with the two of them buddying up more either. He slept all day or was gone all night most of the time, so he had no idea what Eric got up to. He always seemed on edge the nights David was home. He remembered the crusty-looking boxes that Eric had left behind after he moved out, just sitting in the middle of his empty room. He'd never thought to look through them. They stank like damp and decay, like an old shed. He was afraid that if he touched them, he'd feel dirty after like the kind of feeling that creeps under your skin no matter how much you wash. He assumed it was all soiled clothes and garbage, and since the room was usually off-limits for him, it was easy to ignore. What if Eric left something more behind? A wretched form coiled in the box, inert and waiting until this morning. And now it had him cornered. In his mind, he began meeting many terrible fates, Claws piercing the curtain, impaling him, the thing left unseen. Or the curtain torn away, revealing its terrifying form. Was it a humanoid creature, or a shapeless monstrosity he couldn't make sense of? Would it devour his soul, mangle his flesh, or leave no trace of him at all? In an odd way, he hoped it would be violent yet quick, leaving something definitive behind. Then his parents wouldn't be left with questions of where he'd gone. 
It was at this point he snapped back to the world around him, noticing how dim the lights had become. No, no, no. Renewed panic welled up inside him. He tried to get up, but slipped, banging his knee into the tub. Fuck! The pain released all his pent-up feelings in a torrent of desperation. The light's almost completely out now. Leave me the fuck alone! What do you want from me? There was a moment of calm, his throat burning, before the roaring response that followed. It would have been hard for him to describe. Every surface vibrated and the lights died completely. David sensed a surging toward him, his ears bombarded with booming noise and speech that he couldn't understand yet terrified him all the same. He covered his ears and squeezed his eyes shut, trying to will away the onrush of activity. He collapsed himself onto the floor of the tub, curling up, overwhelmed by the oppressive force assailing his senses. He couldn't tell how much time had passed. It might have been an eternity or moments. Everything was calm. He opened his eyes and the lights were back to normal. The shower was running as steadily as it always had. He began to rise, his knee still throbbing a little. The fan droned on like normal. He remained silent and still for a few long moments. He stared at the curtain, no silhouette. He hadn't ever seen one, but it offered a small comfort. He tried peeking at the condensation on the ceiling, but couldn't make out any shapes nor darkness reflected. <sighs> he sighed heavily, like someone dropping something heavy they'd been straining to carry. The shower was beginning to lose its hot water. He ran his face under it to refresh himself before turning off the taps. Silence prevailed in the bathroom, except for the continual hum of the fan. He felt like someone waking from a dream, relieved to find that the nightmare had been just that, only a nightmare. David reached for the edge of the curtain before pausing. He felt a safety and confidence he wasn't sure why he failed to summon before, but was still wary. He shifted to the other end of the curtain, which opened in front of the toilet. Inconvenient, but if there was still something there, he could have a little more room between him and it. <laughs> he laughed a little at what he now saw as silliness, but opened that side all the same. To his immediate relief, he saw nothing there at all. Nothing was out of place in the bathroom, and early morning sunlight was still barely coming into the apartment. The only thing that he caught was the other end of the shower curtain flapping closed, as if just as he poked his head out, something had slipped in behind him. When a loved one goes missing, it can be torture. 
There are so many questions, so many what-ifs. Did something bad happen to them? Did they choose to leave? But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author M.J. Ors, sometimes when you're a family member of a missing person, suspicion can fall on you. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Nicole Goodnight, Erica Sanderson, and Mick Wingert. So let's join a couple as they look for their missing daughter. But when the phone rings late at night, maybe it's time to call off the search. The search party scoured the woods for weeks. I can distinctly remember the way the police chief spoke to us when he told us they were going to cease the search, but that they wouldn't be giving up the fight to find Abby, that if she was still out there, they would find her. Somehow, some way, they would find my little girl. I even remember the way he hugged me and hugged my wife. <laughs> and I could tell he had rehearsed every line of the bullshit he was feeding us in the mirror the night before. I was grateful, though, for the trembling in his voice. That meant he cared. He was just doing his job. They couldn't continue to exhaust the resources anymore, and the volunteers were getting fewer and fewer by the day. It wasn't that he wanted to stop looking, but that at this point, there wasn't a lot of hope that they were going to find Abby, at least not find her alive. The morning that Abby went missing wasn't the worst of the days. I think the worst day was day two. You see, on day one, you're scared, but you're hopeful. On day one, you think that whatever happened will have a resolution and that they'll find your daughter and, and arrest whoever took her or, or that she'll simply come back home. Nine-year-old kids can run away. It isn't a common thing, especially not around these parts, but it can happen. She had her rebellious streaks from time to time, so it, it wasn't completely improbable that she took off for one reason or another. Looking back at it all now, I, I realized that I was stupid. Like I said, on day one, you're hopeful. On day two, the realism sets in. By day two, the hopefulness is gone. You realize how long 24 hours can actually be and your brain begins to think of all the things that could have happened to your sweet, innocent daughter over the course of 24 hours. There are a lot of terrifying things that can happen in that amount of time. I recall there even being a part of me that wished, if someone had taken her, that, that, she, was, that she was dead at this point. I didn't like the thought of my baby suffering at the hands of some monster. Who could ever hurt a child? A bastard. The police were kind, especially in the beginning. They would check in on my wife and I, and they would make sure that we were informed if anything was found. They reported back to us daily, and I couldn't be more thankful for that. However, their, their searches always came up empty, with the exception of one time. There was a point about a week into the searches where somebody had stated that they had found a young girl's sleeping gown out of the woods towards the edge of town. I was heartbroken when I heard the news, but th that hopeful glimmer raised its shiny head for just a second. 
Even though it wasn't that somebody had found my daughter, we were one step closer to an answer to, to, to closure of some sort. But the, uh, but the gown wasn't hers. We looked at it immediately after the call came in. We had never seen anything like it before on our Abbey. It was a false lead. There were plenty of tips coming into the department, but other than that gown, none of them were anything more than hearsay or speculation. People would call in and say that they thought they saw somebody who looked like Abby at a hardware store 45 miles away, but it would always amount to nothing. It was kind of like when you go fishing as a kid. You know, every single time your line moves, even slightly, you get excited and think that you're on the path to catching that big fish. But it turns out to just be the drag from the bottom of the lake. Eventually, you realize that it's just mud and dirt and scum and... It's all worthless, just like those calls, those dozens of calls that meant nothing. While the police were relatively kind, the townsfolk, though hiding it well at first, had opinions of their own. I understand where they were coming from, but it still hurt nonetheless to be suspected. You always hear about the crazy parents who kidnapped their own children or things of that sort. But you never really think about what it would be like to be a parent of those missing children. Yeah, but I've since learned to forgive the folks in town here who believe that I or my wife had a hand in our daughter's disappearance. They weren't being cruel. They were, they were just believing what they had always heard in the media or on the news about other stories. And not to mention, it's much easier to have a face on the monster that took a small child from her bed and to think that that person might still be out there. They want to know in their own minds that their child is safe. So thinking of me or my wife as the culprit helps them to sleep at night. As long as they stay away from us, from our family, then this devilish beast they've made us out to be won't come snatch up their babies in the middle of the night. And yet, and yet they still continue to aid in the searches. I can only assume it was more for our Abbey than for either of us. I'd like to think, though, that now that the searches are ending and everyone is getting on with their lives, that they can start to see us as more normal parts of the community. Even though I know that the stigma will hang over our heads for the rest of our lives. Well, at least as long as we live in this town. That, that was weeks ago. The murmurs have begun to die down, though are still very present and certainly not whispered with any shame. The stairs continued as I would walk through the grocery store. But at least it felt like it was only every few people instead of every single person. Life was starting to peek out a tiny morsel of normalcy, and the weight and burden of the event lifted ever so slightly from my shoulders. My wife felt the same. In fact, she seemed to be stronger during these hard times than I did. <laughs> I'll admit it, even as a man, that I relied on her courage throughout this ordeal. I wouldn't have been able to handle all of this if it wasn't for her efforts and her hopefulness. Even though we all knew the inevitable. Abby's gone. Abby isn't coming back. We will never... <laughs> We will never see Abby again. I would stare into the mirror 
watching myself say the words, trying to believe them. Abby's in a better place now. I was wrong. It was 4.15 in the morning or so when the phone rang. I was sleeping, as was my wife. Her phone was face down, only emitting that tiniest bit of light that seeped out from between the wooden nightstand and the metal hunk of technology. Caroline, Caroline, who's calling you this early? Is everything okay? Caroline leaned over and picked up the phone. The shine from it revealed a puzzled look on my wife's face. Her head cocked to the side like a puppy waiting for its next direction. It's an unknown number. I grumbled and rolled back over onto my side, pulling the pillow over my face to keep the light at bay. Are you going to answer it? No, I'm sorry, Mark. Go back to bed. And with that, I heard her phone vibrate as she turned off the ringer and set the phone back down on the bedside table. She lay down and in seconds was back to sleep, softly snoring. Caroline, come on. I gripped the pillow over my ears now, waiting to feel my wife's body tussle out of the covers to grab the phone. She moved quickly and silenced the vibrations. Mark, look. She held the phone up close to my pillow for me to inspect. I rubbed my open hand across my face and let out a sigh as I squinted to read the screen. Unknown caller. <sighs> just, just answer it. It's probably some shithead kid or something. Maybe one of those nasty old cronies finally got our number and wanted to harass us about, you know. Or maybe just someone in a different time zone or someone trying to sell us shit. I don't know. Just, just pick it up. Phone call isn't going to hurt. But, but whoever it is, just let them know it's four in the morning and they need to fucking stop calling here. I felt Caroline shift once more as she held the phone to her ear. Hello? Hello? I sat up, just in time to watch my wife hurl her phone across the room. She began to sob into her folded arms, hugging her knees to her chest. Caroline? Caroline? Caroline, what the hell? What happened? Who, who was that? All she could do was cry. I stood up out of bed and shuffled over to where her phone had landed. The, the call was still going. I could see the timer ticking up second by second on the screen. I picked up the phone and held it to my ear. Mark, don't- Hey, who the fuck do you Daddy? think- Daddy, is that you? Now listen here, if this is some kind of game, I swear to God- Daddy, I'll... why are you screaming at me? I knew this had to be a joke. Someone from town must have thought this was some sort of sick game, and I could just imagine them sitting in a room with all their little friends, trying to hold back their giggles so I wouldn't hear it on my end. Look, we don't think this is funny. I know you're getting a laugh from this, but you need to understand that this is really a crushing matter for my family. Daddy, please. Daddy, it's freezing here, and I'm scared. The voice on the other end started sobbing, and not the fake comic <laughs> sobbing of a bratty teenager making a prank call, but, but a sob that I had heard so many times before. The sob I had heard with every scraped knee and with every lost dolly. It was the sob I had heard when our family dog died, and the sob I had heard when dessert couldn't come before dinner. This was my little girl. This was my Abby. 
Where are you, sweetie? I had given up the idea that this was a prank. I had accepted that even if there was only a slim chance that my Abby was on the other end of the phone, I wanted to find out as much as I could. Sweetheart, you need to tell me where you are. I can come get you. I'll come get you right now. L look around you. What do you see, sweetie? Tell me. It's so dark, Daddy. Mark, you're scaring me. Hang up the phone, tell them this isn't funny and that they need to leave us alone. Sweetheart, sweetheart, please. A Abigail, please tell me something. Tell me anything. We're coming for you, I promise. We're coming to find you no matter what. G can you see anything at all? Anything that can tell us where you are? Abby, please. Please look as hard as you can. Mark. Mark, this has got to be some stupid kids playing some stupid game. Please hang up the phone. This is too much. Daddy, it's dark. Daddy, it's dark. I know, sweetie. I know. But... Daddy, it's dark. Daddy, it's dark. Daddy, it's dark. Abigail, I hear you, baby. Just. Daddy, it's dark. 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 <laughs> Leaping out of bed, Caroline grabbed the phone from my hand and threw it to the ground. The sound of the plastic and glass breaking on the floor pulled me out of my trance that this prankster had put me in. The rock in my stomach stayed sunken in my gut as I looked to my wife, just wanting to cry, but simply not able to project tears or sound. I shook. I just shook. We didn't clean up the pieces of the phone. For, for a few moments after the call, we just existed. The overwhelming nature of the situation just flooding over us, drowning us silently. I was the first to make a sound. That was an awful thing to do. What the hell was that, Mark? That was sick. It sounded almost... I don't know, demonic. Who does that kind of shit? You know there is no way that was Abby, right? You know that couldn't have been her. That was not our little girl. I know. I know, but damn, Caroline. Damn, it sounded so much like her. I know what it sounded like. I know that it seemed it could have been her, but it's been months. And her voice is going to live in your head forever. You know that. I'm sure we'll both hear her voice for the rest of our lives, in every little laugh or somewhere on every television show. She is always going to be with us, Mark, but that... that wasn't our girl. The sound she made, and... and why was she saying that it was dark? Mark, stop it! Get it out of your head that it was Abigail. It wasn't. You want it to be her so bad, and I get that. But Mark, she's gone. She's been gone for months. And though it hurts to think about, you know what the sheriff said. <sighs> that she's, she's likely gone. That she's likely... <sighs> that she's likely dead. Caroline walked over to my side of the bed and reached for my hand. It's hard. There isn't anything we can do at this point. There isn't anything we can do. 
I looked over to the clock to see that it was still only half past four in the morning, then brought my gaze back to my wife, who was obviously just as confused as I was, staring at me for some kind of answer. I felt a heat rise in my body as the rock from my stomach shot up into my chest, now a fireball as I allowed myself to fill with rage. Oh no, this has gone too far. Uh, the call is one thing, but I'll be damned if I'm gonna let this motherfucker come to my home. I made my way over to the closet and from the top shelf pulled down the 12 gauge shotgun I had there to protect my family. Now, if ever, was the right time to claim it from its resting place. Caroline said nothing. I could sense she was now sharing my rage, but couldn't find the right move to make. I stormed out of the bedroom door and made my way towards the front of the house. I held my breath as I stood in the foyer, shotgun in hand, waiting for another sound. I could hear my heart racing inside my own head, but it left me unbothered. I had a goal, and I was ready to teach these punks a lesson. I wasn't sure if I was going to actually shoot them or just scare them straight, but I knew that somehow I was going to get my point across. I leapt forward, grabbing the handle and pulled the knob as hard as I could towards me. I shouldered my weapon, finger on the trigger, and took one step to the threshold of the house. Nothing. Look, officer, I'm telling you, we both heard the knocking. We both heard the call. We both heard the voice. This isn't something in our heads. Officer Brown placed a hand on my shoulder. Mark, listen. We all know you and Caroline have been through a lot. We know that this isn't something people just work their way through or get over. And I'll even go so far as to say that maybe you did hear something knock against the door. But I don't think someone is messing with you two. I just don't. These houses creak and rattle. The bang could have been the wind. Or maybe the house is settling or something like that. I don't know, but people don't just... Vanish? You know that's not what I meant, Mark. Uh, look, you'll be hard-pressed to find me not believing that people can't just vanish. Brown hung his head, aware of the fact he had struck a chord. Maybe you two need a vacation. When was the last time you guys got out? Maybe try to leave this town, this house, for a week or two. It might do you some good. A little rest and relaxation certainly never hurt anyone. But unless you got some kind of proof about either of these claims, the call or the knocking, there really isn't much I can do. But maybe drive by and check in on the house a bit on shift when I'm doing rounds around the town. Okay, I'd appreciate that. I felt more defeated than dismissed. Officer Brown nodded to me, patting my shoulder gently, then nodded to Caroline before exiting. I shut the door behind him. They think we're crazy. You know that, right? They think we're fucking nuts. <laughs> I don't think so. I think they just don't know what to do. I don't think they believe us, that's for sure. But I don't think that they think we're crazy. He pities us. Nobody takes us seriously, Mark. He pities us like children. We worked so hard and tried so hard, and we did everything we could. Oh, Caroline, it's going to be okay. You know, maybe he was right about getting away. Maybe we should get out and try and go somewhere nice for once. He's not wrong. It has been quite some time, and honestly, maybe a change of scenery could do us some good. I'm not going anywhere. 
I'm not leaving until I find out who the hell is pulling the shit. What does it matter? Who cares? If it happens again, we can hopefully trace the call back to a number. I'll call the phone company. I'll get a hold of somebody. They might not even have my number, and we can change yours when you get a new phone. They won't be able to reach us. Except through the front fucking door, Mark. Except when they show up at our house at 4.30 in the morning. What's next, climbing through the windows? Hiding under our bed? How far are you willing to let this go, Mark? Calm down. Slow down. Slow down for just a minute. You're talking- Crazy? Am I? Or am I saying things that are scaring you just as much as they scare me? How do we know that the banging wasn't a distraction? How do we know that there isn't someone in the house now? How can you be so damn sure, Mark? No one is in our house, Caroline. You don't think that maybe we would have heard them? And none of the windows are open or, or broken or anything of the sort. The house is secure. Uh, what do you think, they can just come through the walls? The only way they could have gotten in would be through the front door, which I opened and I assure you, there was nobody there. Trust me, I looked. I was ready for anything to be standing there and there wasn't a soul on our front porch or by the door or anything. And nothing got past me, I promise you. Caroline sat on the living room sofa, dropping her head and placing her hands folded on the back of her skull. You think I'm crazy too, don't you? You think I'm just as crazy as the cops do. What are we doing, Mark? What's happening here? <sighs> I sat beside her, placing my arm over her shoulder, feeling her shift her weight over onto my body. Nothing is happening. You're scared. I'm scared. It's okay. If you don't want to go anywhere, we don't have to. We can stay here and we can keep the doors locked and we can do whatever you feel would make you more comfortable. I'm here. I won't let anything get to you. I promise. Caroline stayed on the couch most of the day, looking up to the ceiling blankly. I offered her something to eat or drink and she only nibbled at the sandwich I made for her around dinner time. She was disconnected. When the sun had set and I was getting myself ready to go back to bed, I entered the living room to find her, still there, gazing up. Hey, Caroline, are you ready for bed? I crossed the living room behind the couch. Caroline, if you're not ready, that's okay. We can stay down here tonight if you feel safer. But I think that some rest upstairs might do you some good, don't you think? I couldn't make out what she was saying, so I, I stepped closer, still behind the couch. I'm sorry, dear. C could you say that again? Daddy, it's dark! <sighs> Let's go to bed, Caroline. It'll be... Daddy, it's dark! Daddy, it's dark! What? Daddy, it's dark! Daddy, it's dark! Caroline? Caroline, stop it! Daddy, it's dark! Daddy, it's dark! She was yelling now at the top of her lungs, loud enough that I could hear the strain on her vocal cords, and I could imagine the pain in her throat. From behind the couch, I screamed for her to stop, but, but she didn't. I pleaded, now terrified. She, she almost sounded amused at this point, but I, I could still hear her voice giving out. It was deafening. I had never heard Caroline get so loud in the years we had been together. I finally lost it, and I hollered one last time. Caroline, fucking stop! And she did. That same eerie silence that loomed after the knocking the night before had returned. 
I, I wanted to speak, but I couldn't find the words. I couldn't even hear Caroline breathing on the other side of the couch, but I could feel it. I could feel her smiling. I could feel her eyes still staring to the ceiling, all from behind the sofa out of view. Then there was movement. I heard the shuffling on the cushions, slow but light. I was frozen, my eyes looking towards the back of the couch, waiting to see Caroline sit up for the first time that day. In the dim light of the room, I saw a hand come over the top of the couch and grip. It stayed there for a moment, and it took no more than a second for me to realize that it was, it was not Caroline's hand that was reaching to pull the weight up. Abigail? The hand shot back down behind the sofa as I ran around to the other side, pulling myself using the weight of the furniture. There lay Caroline, her eyes still staring, her mouth wide open as if she was screaming. But she was cold. She was gone. If the townspeople didn't think I was a monster before, I'm sure they do now. I called the police immediately after I realized that Caroline was dead. They told me that I did the right thing by calling, but I had to go in for extensive questioning. I knew they were going to think that it was me that killed her. But thankfully, the autopsy proved my innocence. She had died of a heart attack. I never told them about the screaming or my daughter's hand. They, they never would have believed me anyway. I said that I found her laying there just as she was. And I never told them about last night. I never told them how I was in my bed, watching the minutes tick by on the clock. I never told them that a small tap came to my window. I never told them that a young voice could be heard from outside of it, and that this time there was no fear. This time there was a calm. I never told them that I followed that voice out into the yard and across the way into the woods that lined the back of my home. I never told them how I made my way through the trees and how I could feel exactly where to stop. I never told them that I dug roughly five feet deep into the ground and discovered what I had always feared someone else from the search parties would find. But again, there was only calm and a voice. It's okay, Daddy. It's not dark anymore. I looked into the pit. Did she do this to you? She did. How could I have not known? Nobody did. Abigail, I am so sorry. I wish I could have done something. I wish I would have known. Daddy. It's okay. It's not dark anymore. I let the corner lip come up to a tiny smile. Not one of cheer, but more of... contentment. I looked down and started to push the dirt back into the hole. Thank you.
crime scenes can be a tough place to work. When you're a cop, one of the worst things you can do is leave a suspect alone in a crime scene to tamper with evidence. But that's exactly what Officer Chris has done in this tale, shared with us by author Araminta Borga. Luckily, his colleagues have his back and introduce him to an unconventional, questionable way of rectifying the situation. Performing this tale are David Alt, Andy Cresswell, Penny Scott Andrews, James Cleveland, and Erica Sanderson. So put your hands up and come quietly. You have the right to remain silent as we meet the peddler. I sat in a booth at the back of a crowded, dark, smoke-filled pub. Jerry Huff, a portly, chummy fellow copper some 15 years my senior, was ordering the drinks for our table. I didn't want to be there, but Jerry had promised to help me fix my cock up at work if I came. I decided to put down the half-burnt cigarette I'd been fumbling with for a few minutes and ask Jerry the question I'd been putting off. You said you could help me. How? Slow down, Chris. Let's get our drinks. I'm getting draft. Draft or bottle for you. I didn't want to wait around and chit-chat with Jerry, but I could hardly refuse if he was about to save my skin. After the drinks came, I tried again. How can you help me? I heard you blew the Harris case. Half the station could hear the chief cursing you out... It's likely as not you'll be fired, but the chief owes me a favor, and I think I could smooth things over for you. Jerry was friends with every other police officer I knew, so I believed it. But he was as blue a copper as I could imagine, so I didn't believe he'd bend rules for an idiot like me for no reason. And what do you want from me? It's not about what I want. It's about what we can do to make this mess right. Tell me, what did you do? (sighs) I let suspect tamper with evidence. I grimaced. I didn't want to relive the events, but I could hardly deny them either. Not twelve hours ago, I had been the first responder at a crime, just there to secure the scene and hand it off to the detectives. Mary Harris, a frazzled blonde housewife, face crisscrossed by worry lines, looked like anything but a murderer to me. She seemed so genuinely grief-stricken that it didn't even occur to me she'd steal evidence right from under me. I shouldn't have pitied her. I shouldn't have let her near her husband's body. I should have searched her, but it was too late now. The murder weapon didn't turn up. I saw a kitchen knife on the ground when I arrived, but before the crime scene guys could bag it, the CSIs looked everywhere and couldn't find it. And we're not sure there's a solid case against her without it. Oh, (laughs) she snuck it out from right under your nose, didn't she? You must be pretty pissed at that bird. Yeah, real pissed. In truth, I blamed Mary less than myself. Jerry patted my shoulder. Hey, look, I've been there. I get it. 
We all make mistakes, pal, especially when it comes to women. Can't trust one of them. You said about making this right. Yes, I did. Can't just let a murderer run around free, can we? We gotta do something. <laughs> what can we possibly do? I'm suspended at the very least, and you're not even on the case. Not anything official. What I'm talking about is unofficial. I know some guys. Guys who make sure murderers like Mary Harris don't do it again. I haven't heard of any rogue bands of police patrolling around here or breaking down doors, and I would. Ah, it's nothing old school like that. We got a secret. It's simple. Risk-free. All hands off. Really? How? Slow, Chris. You want to meet the guys, talk it over. We just want to see that justice gets done. I'm not sure that'd be a good idea. I'm in enough trouble already. You'll be in less trouble if I help you out, and the guys all know you did your best to fix things. Anyway, the way we do it, there's no way that you could get in trouble. I paused, uncertain whether I should take his offer. I wasn't sure what exactly his offer was. I didn't even know if I was really doing any good. Mary Harris might just go on with her life. She was a desperate wife who'd been run around on. Not a bloodthirsty thug. Yeah, I don't know, mate. It might be best to just let the whole case blow over. For everyone. You know, I heard a statistic from the guys in London about these crimes of passion where one spouse murders another. These messed up arseholes, if they get away, get married again. Or into one of these live-in relationships, and they usually do it again. He slammed his beer down. And the kid, did you hear? She's keeping custody of him. Who knows what that little brat is going to grow up like, raised by a psycho like her. She could catch him doing drugs in school one day and bam! Whole family goes down in one of those bloody murder-suicide messes. I couldn't see her killing her son. You never know with these nut jobs, but maybe you're right. With any luck, maybe she'll have just traumatized the little guy for life. You'll grow up without his old man. I knew most of what he was saying was crappy exaggeration. Still, he had a point. For murder, any repeat offense is far too many. Come on, let me drive you there. We can talk it over with the others. Part of me yelled no. Another part said to give it a shot. Maybe we talk to her, intimidate her out of any more crimes, or maybe whatever Jerry planned would be even better. If it could save a life, it was probably worth a shot. I guess we could talk to the other guys. Good choice, mate. As soon as we finished our drinks, we left the pub. Jerry drove us out of Gloucester into the suburbs and then into the dark English countryside. The car rolled along the A4173 in the moonlight. Old farm fields sprawled on either side of the road. Tall grasses and their shadows danced in the breeze. I just stared out of the window for a while before breaking the silence. Where are we headed? Not far. Tetbury. Little map dot full of historical stuff, old as dirt. It's got this marketplace that was big back in the 1600s or so. Total tourist trap. Yeah, I've heard. 
Well, this friend of mine, a local copper, he's patrolling around it one night. Actually, I guess he was looking for this suspect or something. You see, people disappear in Tetbury. You know, people normally run off and come back, especially delinquents, gangbangers, wanted persons. They didn't come back there. Never going to find one of those people again. Bam, they're just gone. Made it away, the police thought. Anyway, my mate, Rick, he's going down the creepy old lanes around that marketplace. You ever seen it on a postcard? The market house has got the big fancy old pillars, windows and that clock tower thing and the stalls underneath. I felt confused, concerned and irritated all at once. Confused about what Jerry was trying to tell me, concerned about the missing people and irritated at Jerry's inability to tell a story. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen it. What happened? Well, he's going down the street past it one night. The stalls are sitting empty, but he hears this sound coming from in there. This freaky grinding, like when your teeth scrape against the T-bone. Actually, exactly like it, I bet. Anyway, he goes in with a torch and starts looking around when he sees blood. Blood! Going in a little stream out from under the tables. So he walks up and pulls away the tablecloth. And you won't believe what he sees. Uh-huh. What's this have to do with anything, Jerry? I'm getting to it. Sitting there, gnawing on a bone, there's this woman in a red hood and cape and riding get-up. But she's skinny and freaky tall like seven, eight feet, like one of those hot equestrian chicks meets Little Red Riding Hood meets Slender Man, and she's holding a basket full of bones. And on the ground around her, there's just blood everywhere, and this mangled corpse, or maybe just a pile of flesh by that point. And she looks up at him, and she doesn't have any face just this black shadow and two white little orbs for eyes. What did he do? Obviously, he runs the hell out of there. That's when he calls me. He's freaking out. He doesn't know what to do. I'm thinking he's crazy. I tell him to calm down. It's just some kind of prank or something. I call a few of the guys to go check it out with us. I call Teddy, Leo, a few of the guys in the department to come out. We meet Rick in Tetbury, go back to the market and check under the table. Let me guess, it was gone? No, that thing was still there, crouched under the table on all fours, like some kind of animal. And it was licking up the blood. The corpse was gone, and it was cleaning up any traces with this freaky, long, shadowy tongue. I swear... I was utterly lost. What sort of urban legend was Jerry spewing? This had to be some sort of prank or revenge, some sort of hazing. Look, what the hell are you... I swear, I'm not kidding, just let me finish. We all ran out of there. We were freaked out and didn't know what to do for days. Then Mick suggests his wife knows these new age ladies... This one among them, she claims she's a druid or Wiccan or whatever, and she goes around taming these angry spirits. We go to the lady, her name's Bella, and tell her the story. 
If you ask me, I don't think she ever really did this stuff before. I bet she makes her money selling revenge spells and love potions to middle-aged crackpots. But she offered to summon the thing, bind it, and make it follow commands. I wanted to protest and argue how unreal this story was. Did you think I was that much of an idiot? But I couldn't even find the words. And you know what? She did it. We brought her there. She does this voodoo cack and bam, we got the creature in shackles. She seemed as surprised as we were. I stared at him, but he just laughed. (laughs) You'll see, mate. I slumped back in my seat. I wasn't sure what was happening, but it was too late. I was in for it. Ten minutes later, the car pulled to a stop across from the Tetbury Market House. It was, like Jerry described, an old, ornate, two-story building with festive decorations and a massive clock tower. It looked ordinary, yet in the moonlight and after Jerry's story, slightly ominous. Through the open columns on the bottom floor, I could see the empty stalls of the last sale, white tablecloths fluttering like ghosts in the wind. Nonsense. Just an ordinary building where old women sold antique buffets and handmade dolls. Jerry went up to a closed shop with papered over windows in a building across the street. He pulled out a key and undid the door's padlock. I got out and joined him. I could have run. There might have been a gang of pissed-off coppers waiting inside to punch me. But whatever I'd got myself into, I was going to grin and bear it. The shop was empty except for a few strewn papers, a metal shelf and a trail of dirty footprints leading to the back door. It's in the cellar. I followed him through the back door down a flight of dingy metal stairs. At the bottom we arrived in a small storeroom, empty except for rubbish strewn about. The door at the back swung open as twelve men and one woman stepped out. Some I knew, Teddy, Mick, BJ, Leo, and the rest must have been from other departments. The woman, probably Bella, looked like a lot of New Age types I had seen, probably in her fifties, wearing a paisley dress and a dozen jangling bracelets and wooden cuffs with fuzzy blonde hair. She threw up her hands dramatically. Who... Have you brought into our circle? Friend of mine from work. Some of you should recognize Chris, right? There were a couple of nods in the crowd. Chris's case is why I asked us all to get together tonight. That bird on the Harris case is getting off. It's Chris's fault, but cut him some slack. He's here to help make sure she gets hers. Again, there were nods and a few murmured agreements. Has Jerry explained what we do here? Kind of. He implied you send this psycho ghost chick to eat the jail dodgers? 
Almost. I call her the Peddler. Forgive me if that seems too indulgent for a murderous beast, but to me, her spiritual guide, she is like a daughter. Long ago, she was a young girl who roamed Tetri's market, selling things. Matches, flowers, firewood and such. A poor girl. An orphan. She was attacked. Brutally raped and killed in this market house. I can still see the blood stains on the cobbles. From the 1600s? <laughs> I didn't notice them. Well... I imagine you can't sense energy remnants. After that, her spirit was twisted with wrath, stretched beyond humanity. She was reborn as a coagulation of fierce anger and hate energy. You can feel the negative ions just walking into this place. Remind me to hand you some rose quartz later to steal your heart chakra. This Eidolon, or you might prefer a wraith, I prefer Eidolon, is a fearsome beast that roams and eats, eats the bones of humans and drinks their blood. She appeared serious. They all appeared serious. And yet I couldn't imagine how this story could be true. She seems to know to target those who remind her of her vicious attackers. Criminals and the worst scum. She is viciously murderous, yet calculating enough to leave no trace. Which is why she is so perfect for our sacred purposes. Under my enchantment, she kills evil as we command. Again, she waved her arms like she was the high priestess of a mighty ritual. I would have found it funny, since she looked more like an organic food store clerk, but I'd lost my sense of humor. She and everything else seemed totally unreal. I pray... She might redeem her spirit one day, if she could heal her rats. Can we get this started? My wife was on my case to get home early tonight. I'm afraid she's going to call the bar and find out I'm not there if I stay out too late. Another guy muttered something about his wife not missing it, and the others chuckled. Bella interrupted them by throwing open the rusty metal door at the back of the room and ushering us through it. Somebody flipped a switch and the lights came on with a crackling buzz. We stood inside an abandoned storage room with plaster-stained brick walls and a few rotting cardboard boxes strewn across the cracked concrete. The only thing remarkable about it was the ghost chained to the floor. She stood a little over seven feet tall with slender, stick-like limbs and wore simple clothing, tall leather boots, plain linen trousers and shirt, and a deep blood-red cloak. Her hands were black with long, ethereal claws extending to her knees. 
Her face was shadowed by the bulky hood of her cloak, but somehow I felt that if I looked, I wouldn't find any face at all. Her restraints seemed comically mundane next to her unearthly form. Common hardware store chains bound by small blue padlocks wrapped tightly around her wrists, connected to eye-rings duct-taped and pounded into the floor. It looked more like cheap jewellery rigs I'd done before rather than a supernatural prison. A ring of heavy salt crystals surrounded the girl, trailing from a box of canning salt dropped a few feet away. This strange prison, that unthinkable creature in the middle of it, this whole group... I didn't know what I should do. There was actually a very bloodthirsty, man-eating monster in front of me. I coughed suddenly, having forgotten to breathe for a moment from shock. Jerry came up from behind and slapped me on the back. I know, quite a sight all by itself, let alone eating corpses. You should have heard what Rick said. He went up and loosed the creature's chains. The thing crouched and lifted its claws like a cat about to lunge, but Jerry calmly went on like a lion trainer walking into the cage. The other guys formed a circle around the ghost and linked hands. Bella took my hand and led me up until I stood face to not quite a face with the creature. Jerry took my other hand. Stay calm. This monster has a crazy kind of presence that gets everyone on edge. We will all recite the program and focus wholly upon the duty we charge this Eidolon with. To kill Barry Harris. To destroy any evidence. To leave no trace or witness outside of this club. And to return to here. When her mission is suitably imprinted upon her, and absolutely no sooner, I will break the salt ring to let her perform her mission. This is important. You've got to be the one who tells the creature who it's killing. You've seen Harris. You're the one pissed off at her. Focus on those things as hard as you can, and nothing else. I barely listened because I was busy dodging eye contact with something that lacked eyes. The creature seemed to peer at me anyway. Bella started chanting and everyone else followed. Betty can win. The syllables were strange yet familiar. I guessed it was ancient English, harder to understand than the Shakespeare I'd read in school. I didn't try to make out what it meant since I decided I wouldn't want to know. I clutched my companion's hands tightly and repeated the words. Suddenly, the creature retracted her claws and put her surprisingly warm hands on my shoulders, draping the chains down my chest. I was about to pull back, but Bella interrupted her chant and stopped me. No, that's important. She must make a psychic bond to understand better. Let her touch you. 
I shuddered. A monster, the peddler they called it, was real and it was touching me. I shut my eyes and recited faster. I pictured Mary Harris's face. I couldn't think of any violence or harm to her, though I knew why I was here. It seemed too sick, even though she was a killer. I solely imagined her face in front of mine. That was hard when the real person in front of my face was much more terrifying. Skeet af, dæren skeet af, ar vi er gang svimar, eges grima gast. I peeked at the room, but everyone else was used to this, reciting to Bella's lead quickly and intensely. The peddler was staring at me. It seemed impossible, but from the faceless creature, two large, round, glowing white eyes had appeared, and they were looking at me. I felt like it was pleading with me from the current running through our touch. Where before I was trying to command her, she was now telling me. She told me what a life of excruciating pain she lived. I saw visions of her past flicker through my head. Her life held only sadness and agony. Her death held only torment and vexation. She'd been bound and broken. She had no real body, only a spirit which was being wrought like an iron bar to others' will. It was painful to her, as painful as she could possibly imagine, and I could feel hints of that pain dashing through my nerves, one at a time, like needles dancing across my flesh. To kill, to rip, to bleed, to slice, the violent images flashing by horrified me. They used her as a weapon, and now she hated these people. Even her mother, who only sought to use her. Everyone, even in her life, she yelled straight into my brain, debased her to an animal. She did not want to be an animal. She let loose an agonized scream that made me shudder so hard I nearly fell back. That's normal. Don't worry. And don't stop. Everyone kept chanting. Their faces, their clothes, their names, everything but what was pouring out of their mouths seemed normal and familiar, like the world I knew earlier today. The volume had raised to thunder over the dreadful screams while in front of me stood a writhing, screaming, defenseless human. I pushed my boot forward, kicking aside the ring of salt. I'd barely made my choice by the time I'd regretted it. Seconds later, darkness and hurt were all I could feel as the creature headbutted me with extraordinary force. I must have blacked out. My head throbbed. What had happened? I stared up at the basement ceiling and the single, dim, yellowy light bulb that lit it. The room was silent. I lifted myself up and stared in utter shock around the room. What horrible things had happened here? There were no people and no corpses were distinguishable anymore. Large puddles of blood webbed across the room. Bones, mostly broken, were strewn all around. 
Scraps of red-stained cloth that looked slashed by the sharpest of butcher's knives laid everywhere. I could hardly process what must have happened. I noticed a glint of metal in the puddle next to me. Jerry's keys. I grabbed them and left. It disgusted me to do so, but as I walked out, I tiptoed between the puddles to keep the blood off my shoes. The outer room was dark. The light must have been smashed, so I got out my torch. From the floor came a rasping sound. I stopped and could barely make out Bella's body on the floor. She was stabbed, no, no, clawed, with five big puncture wounds in her chest. Covered in blood, she clutched that old box of canning salt like a vice. She... I grabbed her and pulled her up. What happened here? She was a spirit of wrath. She killed hate, anger, violence, are all she knows. But you... She clutched my arm tightly. Her breathing was getting heavier, more strained. You freed her. She used your pity. And we died for it. You killed us. But she forgave you. She slumped back. She is still... of hate. She stopped breathing, so I let her fall back to the floor. Everything was happening too fast. I just wanted to go home to run away and forget this, but where was the peddler? I couldn't stop until I knew, not because I wanted to, but I was still a police officer. I knew that wherever that creature went, it would kill someone. If I just let it hurt this many people, I couldn't let it hurt another person, not even Mary Harris. I left the abandoned building. Just on the smallest hope, I strolled over to the market house, praying for the strangest sight I could imagine, a creature slurping blood and crunching bones under a table. I didn't find it, so I ran to Jerry's car. I floored it back to Gloucester, where Mary Harris was and the peddler might be going. I had overheard Mary make plans to stay at a hotel right off the motorway with her sister and her eight-year-old son. It was a dingy place, but it was only a few nights while waiting for the flight to her sister's home. Her car was parked right outside room 196. I gave it a try, pounding the door loudly with no idea what I was going to say when it opened. Mary Harris opened the door. You! Why are you here? I just bowled inside. Her sister and her son Greg were there too, with shocked looks on their faces. 
quick, there's a killer. My words were cut short by a sharp pain in my side. What the... Had she stabbed me? Blood was leaking from the side of my stomach. Mary, terrified and surprised, dropped a bloody knife, just like the one from the crime scene. I felt extremely woozy. The sister was yelling and Greg was crying. Mary was shouting, trying to calm them. I could barely see anymore. I moaned. Everything was dark for the second time this night. My side still ached. The night air was cold. I must have been moved. I heard a whir and opened my eyes. I was in a car, starting to move, to roll. Smoke rose around me and the air began to feel warm. Someone was lying next to me in the passenger seat. Her stomach was bleeding too. It was Mary Harris. No, no. It was her sister. Suddenly I realized the car was on fire and rolling forwards. I jerked awake and pulled the woman onto my lap. I could feel the car speeding up. From the bright orange glow of the street lamps, I could see it begin to roll down a car ramp straight towards a metal fence. I opened the door and flung us both out. I slammed forcefully on the rough concrete. The car must have hit the rail and the flames were roaring. I was alive, at least. The motel was still near. I could see its neon sign just a few hundred yards away. Mary had tried to kill me. Did her sister not play along and needed to be shut up? I didn't know what happened, but I had to help Mary and especially her kid. So I ran, leaving my fellow victim behind. I bolted across the road as fast as I could, my side in splitting pain. There was another pair of feet pounding nearby, running faster than mine. A dark figure rushed in front of me. She was here. The peddler was here. I kept running and somehow reached the car park without the creature in sight. Mary was loading suitcases into the boot while Greg wailed. I limped the last few meters up to them, yelling, Please, you've got to get out of here. You've got to get help, believe me. Her jaw dropped, but she quickly caught herself and threw the last case into the car. Leave us alone. I'll hurt you again if I have to. I'm taking Greg and I'm getting out of here, and you're not stopping us. I don't... Look! There the peddler was, crouched on top of the motel sign, dimly lit by the neon glow, claws extended, tongue dangling down. Her blood-red cloak now looked wet. Mary screamed like a banshee in labour. She leapt in the driver's seat and pulled Greg with her. I tugged the back door open and flung myself in just before Mary floored it out of the car park. Greg cried and Mary was nearly hyperventilating. The car sped away, but I watched through the rearview window as the creature leapt down from the sign and started darting for us. She landed with supernatural dexterity on all fours and bounded with inhuman speed. 
Even as Mary brought the car to 50 miles an hour, it caught up to us. We raced down the empty street, mindless of lanes or traffic patterns, as the peddler got closer. With a leap, it disappeared. Brake! Mary listened. A few seconds later, the peddler landed several feet in front of our car, clearly having missed her target. It didn't matter. She leapt again. We all screamed. The car's roof crunched under a huge weight. Long black spikes pierced inside. They ripped away, pulling a hole in the roof and revealing the blood-drenched monster. I yanked Greg into the back with me and clutched him. The peddler reached in, clutched Mary by her neck and hoisted her through the roof. She let out a frightened squeak as she disappeared upwards. I held Greg tight as he sobbed. We couldn't see what happened on the roof. I couldn't stop her. From above us came a crunching noise. Through the side window I could see the peddler step down. I shuddered as she flung Mary's body hundreds of meters away as easily as a human might throw a tennis ball. The creature retracted her claws and pulled the car door open. She wasn't leaving us. I pulled Greg back as far as I could, pretending a few car seats might act as a barrier against her, but I couldn't do any more. The peddler leant in with her long, slender body till I felt a breath on my face. Her face was still too shadowed to see. I closed my eyes and steadied my breathing, praying it might be quick and Greg might be spared. Suddenly, I felt a pair of lips small, warm, and a touch chapped, press against my forehead. They pulled back, and I opened my eyes to watch her walk away, slowly, as blood dripped from the edge of her cloak. I sent Greg to call the police. I took the car, sunk it in the nearest deep lake, and turned myself into the hospital on the verge of unconsciousness. The peddler would have to clean up anything else. I slept all through the night and halfway through the next day on a steady IV drip. I had a lot of blood loss from the stab wound and ached from several scrapes and bruises. I woke to deliver a torrent of lies. Jerry had dropped me off at home that night, and I never saw him again. I had no idea what happened to him or his dozen friends to make them disappear. Bella wasn't connected to any of us and wasn't mentioned. I'd gone to confront Mary Harris at Jerry's advice. She'd stabbed me and arranged the car crash with her sister, which we were lucky to survive. Then she took off, leaving her sister in critical condition, and Greg so confused he was spewing stories about monster women. It was all strange, but what other explanations made more sense? Nothing more about the incident, no traces of the disappeared could be found, likely thanks to the peddler. The department bought my story, at least on paper, so after being suspended for several weeks, I got my job back. I kept my eye on Tetbury and any rumours from there for the next few months. The disappearances dwindled, 
but there were still more than usual for a small village. I told myself to ignore it, but I couldn't do that forever. I wanted to know for sure. I drove out one night to the market house. I strolled through, but didn't look under the tables. I didn't follow the shadow that darted past me. I left as soon as I heard a grinding noise and an unsettling dripping. In our final tale, we meet a man who's decided it would be a great idea to meddle with forces beyond his control. When boredom sets in, some of us turn to podcasts or video games or going for a walk. Not this guy. He decides to dabble in dark magic. His goal? To summon a creature from the other side. But in this tale, shared with us by author Lucas Colliani, things don't go quite as planned. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Dan Zapula, and Jessica McAvoy. So next time you're suffering from crushing ennui, maybe just read a book. Because there's no light in this magic. It's all black. I don't remember precisely when I began my fascination with black magic. I'm sure the seed was planted by one too many old-school HTML sites with black backdrops and animated skulls adorned with melting candles. Life bored me a little too much. I've always had proficiency for memorization and the regurgitation of whatever it was I had learned. As I was patting myself on the back for all of my academic accolades, I found myself slipping further and further down the proverbial slope of apathy. I realized I was being horribly unreasonable, but there was still some infantile side of me that wanted radical discoveries and divine insights to be part of human existence. So, naturally, the supernatural was a field of study that snatched my interest. From websites that made my antivirus software nervous to ectomorphic bookkeepers that made good parents nervous, I entered the world of the religious underbelly. Entry into the occult is no small undertaking. You gotta know the right people. And the right people tend to be the wrong people you want your buddies to know, you know? I crawled my way up the demonic food chain over the years, and surprisingly enough, Death metal bands tend to shed the most light on these very shady practices. However, a recent conversation with an occult chieftain of satanic flavor had directed my attention towards rituals that cross the horizon between ethereal and tangible. He had donned the head of an eight-point stag as an insidious helm and made intimidating eye contact throughout our conference which I would have taken more seriously if the deer hadn't obviously been caught off guard at the time of its demise. It made the man look surprised through the stupefaction of the animal's eye holes. He turned me on to the Ars Goetia and the Black Church, 
as well as the methodology of various rituals. The word grimoire invokes visions of high schoolers smoking cigarettes in the bathroom and reading romantic wizard fiction. I, however, got my hands on several dusty, dismembered entries of unholy texts and constructed a ritual that would give me just what I wanted. A divine radical encounter with something we cannot explain. I had acquired almost everything I needed to put my plan into motion. All that was left was to rendezvous with my close friend Daniel, who would no doubt supply me with the last grotesque piece to my satanic machine. Absolutely fucking not. Daniel, what the hell? You owe me for county, dude. What you're asking? We'll do a lot worse than fucking county, man. True, but your old man would have beat your ass a lot worse than fucking prison. I'm not stealing human skin, Ozzy. I'm not gonna be skin stealer Daniel for the rest of my life. You're not gonna get caught, dude. Organ banks are still totally underdeveloped. There's so much room for error. No, don't sleep with him. That's skin stealer Dan Wheeler. Skin steely Dan. Your dad already gets you in under the radar anyway. You're like a ghost. Ozzy, why are you doing this to me? I know I said you can ask me for anything, but what the fuck, dude? Black magic? Really? When this doesn't work, all that risk for nothing. And even if it does, you're calling the goddamn devil. I'm not the most devout Christian, but from what I remember, Satan isn't the friendliest motherfucker you want crawling out of dead people's skin. You're right, dude. Because jump-starting some dude's grand coop to impress a chick you met scanning your groceries wasn't risky. I was drunk, Oz. You can't get me for that. How could I be so dense? My bad, you piece of shit. Dan, you said anything, and I expect you to retain your honor. I steal cars, man. I'm not some paragon of chivalry. But we go way back. That shit means a little more between friends. Daniel looked over his shoulders like there was somebody eavesdropping. But all it really meant was that he was actually going to agree to something he knew was wicked stupid. All right, bro, I'll, uh... I'll, I'll fucking get you the skin. But I swear to God, our tab is even. And if I get caught, I expect you to tell Megan from Quick Stop that I'll wait for her on the other side. I'm sure she'll be faithful. Thank you, thank you, thank you, bro. First round's on me. Thanks, dog. I can't believe I have this little respect for myself. Daniel came through with ten pounds of human flesh, and it felt like cold, yeast-risen dough and plastic wrap between my fingers. The way my eyes looked in the mirror always felt a little different than before he supplied me with the humanoid paraphernalia. All that remained was for Christine to transport me to the decrepit building that stood forsaken in the woods, miles away from civilization. Dude, your backpack reeks of death. It's probably Frederick's flesh. And the dead birds. <laughs> no shit. I'd belittle you if I didn't have 15 tattoos that look just like what you have in that duffel bag. You know tramp stamps will get you laid a lot quicker than dead animals? You know, tattoos of dead animals will get you laid a lot quicker than actual dead animals. I need a lot more than ink to get laid. You think your axles can handle the shit? Uh, yep. Remember I hit that deer last year and nothing too terrible happened? Right. That deer. He may have been doe-eyed, but I don't think his parents would appreciate your recollection. 
I think you're missing the point that my truck can take a beating. All right, all right. I trust you and your boys up in Detroit. You ever been out this far? Not even close. I usually turn around about three miles ago. Well, thanks for indulging me. You believe in what I'm doing out here? As a God-fearing woman? Fuck no. I respect that. But don't you feel shackled by common understanding? Hey, I go to church and get validation for breathing. You can try to talk to Lucifer and find your real reason for living, but I try to believe in what my pastor preaches. And you're fine with that? Maybe, maybe not. All I've been taught is to avoid the man you're trying to hold conversation with. But that's exactly what I think I should do. Interact with the people I've been conditioned not to talk with. Or maybe they say you shouldn't because they know what they're talking about. Well, I'll get back to you if you're right. Jesus Christ. Easy. I don't think he'd appreciate your sacrilegious behavior. My gesture to the limestone replica of Jesus on the cross appearing before us withered away from the elements over a generous amount of time. Christine smiled and put the vehicle into first gear and then slowed it down to a stop before unlocking all four of the doors. We left the vehicle, my door slamming a little gentler than Christine's. Whoop! I sure as hell ain't joining you on this supernatural endeavor. But consider us even for introducing me to your brother. You still owe me. And I still feel a little bitter for selling out my own family. Marcus has never been happier than with a bitch like me. Well, thanks. I appreciate you enabling my mental illness. Hey, some people believe in God. Some people put their faith in the devil. Who am I to judge? Word. Love you, Chris. Remember, my brother hates it when you get back late. At this point, I just do it to see him get mad. But you make sure Lucifer doesn't ruin that pretty face of yours. Impossible. Marcus will be home by four. Get moving. Say hi to the devil for me. Godspeed, Ozzy. Godspeed. Christine looked at the large oak door and then back at me. Her concern changed to optimism and she gave me a hug. She exaggerated her strides to the driver's seat and shut the door. The echoes sent three flocks of birds on a nondescript journey to the second best branches to perch upon. Once she was gone, the outdoors sounded empty, but the inside of my brain sounded turbulent. I faced the building, alone, yet determined. I lugged my sack of sacrilege alongside me until the old oak door slammed behind me. The windows projected beacons of yellowish light peppered with dust that spoke to the age of the structure I'd just set foot in. Finding a truly forsaken building is a much greater task than most would believe. If somebody has pimples and a bad attitude, chances are they are already on their way to spray paint and pass out in whatever abandoned building you want to peacefully summon evil inside. I found out about this beauty through urban legends concerning hermit ghosts and then rifled through some county record books to discover that the old property actually existed. The only thing revealing its location was a dirt road that could easily be mistaken for a hiking trail. All things considered, the infrastructure was in pretty good shape. Still creepy though. The foyer was sprawling and smelled like my grandma's house. It had an expansive wooden floor that resembled an incomplete jigsaw puzzle. There was shoddy decorative furniture, a frayed cord that hung from the ceiling with its gas lamps divorced and in pieces on the floor, and bushes of dust growing in any corner that was away from the cracked windows. 
In the far right corner, there was a cellar entrance with its door unhinged and frosted with cobwebs. I figured the basement would be the best location on the off chance any hikers who got lost saw the place and wanted to take shelter. I headed towards the basement door, the entire house complaining along the way. After sending my right foot through three different steps, I made it to the solid clay floor. I reached into my goodie bag to retrieve my utility flashlight and shine the white light around the black ether. The floor was dry clay, but from years of debris and animal nesting, the ground had the appearance of new forest soil. The basement was laid out much differently than the foyer above it. There were many rooms partitioned off by walls made of materials unknown. I was impressed by what I saw during my self-guided tour. There was a room completely covered with ornate rugs, another piled high with once fine china and trinkets, some with locked doors. A room that was probably some sort of study with a huge mirror and books strewn everywhere. One with a large divot in the ground that held a lot of standing water, as well as a few more rooms of vague definition. I concluded that the underground was dug out to be far bigger than the structure above. I settled on a room that was almost entirely empty, save for a couple of picture frames with no occupants. I made it a point to leave the doors wide open in the event I needed to make a quick escape. I stared into the contents of my bag, and it almost felt like they stared back at me. I ground up graveyard dirt, a variety of berries, goat's blood, my own urine, as well as a few other cliché ingredients in a large mortar of rough calcite. Candles of sheep's fat were lit to administer that almost palpable ceremonious feel. I retrieved a few small sheaves of rye infected with ergot and lashed them together to create a sort of frail twine. The next step required a more macabre offering. In a large vacuum-sealed bag, I had concealed seven dead crows, Surprisingly easy to kill with a pellet gun. I bound their legs together with the twine and hung them upside down from the low ceiling rafters. Mugwort dipped in red wine and then dried again was burned to inoculate the room with a growing, oddly inviting haze. An athames an inscribed ceremonial dagger that is just another household tool for those who wish to perform acts of witchcraft. I unsheathed my own and began carving up the old clay floor. Reading the Lesser Key of Solomon, one will find that there is no shortage of information regarding the satanic occult, and I used its subdivision, the Ars Goetia, to familiarize myself with the demons I planned to contact. Using the latter and several other sources of text, I was able to create a sigil that would allow me to pass through this world and look at the next. I finished my outer ring and inscribed Paimon in between its circles. I poured my dirt and blood mixture into the grooves and brandished my piece de resistance, human skin. I laid it in the middle of the symbol. Reading about the demon, Paimon, everything I encountered spoke about an offering. I decided my own blood was sufficient, so I sliced my palm with the athame and let it dribble down onto the heap of flesh. I began my incantations. Halfway through my Latin rhetoric, I began to feel a warm fuzz ascend quickly from my center, much like the come-up of a good psychedelic. I couldn't help but smile as it climbed up to my face. 
I could swear the glow of the candles was dropping to lower and lower shades of red. As I continued, I could hear the echo of my voice sounding deeper than my own. It sounded like a choir of Gregorian monks was assisting me with my recitations. I looked towards the center of the seal and my body jumped a little bit. The mound of flesh was pulsing. Less pulsing because that implies a rhythm. What was transpiring on the floor looked more akin to something trying to wrestle its way out of the skin. As the deep echoes and I continued our chanting, the pile of flesh continued to writhe, and I was beginning to hear what sounded like several bones snapping and dislocated joints being popped back into position. It was growing, and fast. I was kneeling down, and my creation was already reaching the height of my chest. I finished my vows in time to catch my breath, only to lose it again. The skin thrashed and slithered. I saw sections stretch out into what looked like mangled fingers. Pieces split apart and resembled empty eye sockets and open maws. Two long, crude arms burst forward and thudded onto the ground, complete with hands that mothered eight mangled fingers each. Then another two, and the creature began to evolve from the ambiguously embryonic to the horrifically macabre. Three fleshy faces sprouted out of the beast and were conjoined by one gaping mouth. I wanted to say something to it, but I couldn't find the words, my thoughts twisting like the creature before me. My attention lay buried in the open mouth, and I swore I saw movement inside. I was already only a few feet away from the monster, but I wanted to lean in further, even to touch it. I felt absorbed by it. There was no fear. I only felt deep curiosity as my face practically entered its gaping maw. I was met with still darkness, an orificial eye in the center of an anatomical tempest. Its breath was hot, damp, and stale, but I persisted to peer deeper into the creature. The subtle movement inside caught my attention, and I tried to focus on it until I could finally see what it was. Two small, bony hands wrung themselves around each other inside of the mouth. It almost felt like I made eye contact with them. They paused and separated themselves. My stomach turned when the hands exuded the electric tension of an animal corner. I rocked back, but it was too late. The bony hands plunged into my head. What the fuck? I tumbled onto my ass. All I saw was a brief flash of red so quick that I wasn't sure if I was experiencing it or remembering it. There was nothing but black as I used my hands to inspect the state of my face. Sharp pain greeted me as my middle finger rounded the socket that was normally occupied by my right eye. My thoughts were off the rails, consumed by panic and fear. My horror acted like gravity as it kept my body stunned in place where I fell. Luckily, my instincts broke the lock my head held on my body, and I managed to stumble to my feet and sprint towards the exit with only half of my balance. Arms perpendicular, I ran into the frame of the door and managed to skirt the corner into a different room. 
My fingers probed the tender flesh under my empty sockets. I spun my head back and forth as I tried in vain to capture some inkling of light. There was nothing. The sounds coming from the ritual room reminded me of a newborn animal trying to make its legs work for the first time. As my psyche was coping with the loss of one of my favorite senses, my ears relayed to me that the creature's stumbling was becoming less drunken and began to sound like a crude version of the waltz. It was gonna come for me. I had to get out of the building, but I could barely remember the layout of the basement. I shuffled away from the wall with steps shackled by uncertainty, hands out in front of me. I continued forward, arms waving gently to and fro. Walking while blind was like swimming through a pool of black ink, and without the wall it felt like I was stranded in open water. I figured the walls were my only lifeline, so I sidestepped back to the rough surface and used my fingertips to cull the dark unknown before me. At this point, I was just drifting unguided. I had no idea what room I was in, or which room was the exit. I figured if my fingers could get a feel of what every wall was bearing, I could eventually piece together a sort of braille blueprint that I could use to navigate. All I had to do was avoid the noise that the creature was making, and I could remain out of harm's way. I ran my fingers around a wooden frame, and then a cold, smooth surface must have been the mirror from the study. I was adding the study to the map in my mind when the thumping from the ritual room began to sound different. There was deliberation in the thuds, movement with purpose, a vector. The footsteps, if I can call them that, were of course headed in my direction. Instead of trying to outpace it, I decided to double back because I figured it would take the beast a longer time to turn itself around. Judging by the smell, I passed the ritual room again and continued into a room with a large tapestry on the wall and a secretary desk with knickknacks that I toppled over. It wasn't too difficult to avoid the raucous monster, but I realized I too was making plenty of noise to be followed with. I navigated three more rooms and had a rough blueprint. The ritual room was more or less in the center. Adjacent on the left was the room I made my escape through, characterized by lots of empty cabinets. The next room to the left had a stone wall and what must have been a fireplace. If I walked another room perpendicular and forward, that was the study. But since I had reverse direction, I doubled back to the tapestry room. And then there was the fine china room. Another room forward held a few empty wine racks, and this room was in a corner. I was placing this room into my mental layout when I realized I no longer heard the obnoxious stomping. I took in a light gasp and trained my ears. It was quiet. Fear makes silence weigh a thousand pounds, and without my sense of sight, that weight was borderline bone-snapping. I baited my breath, and finally heard it. It was fucking tiptoeing to get to me. The long, exaggerated strides sent chills down my spine. But even worse was the fact that I couldn't pinpoint where they were coming from. They were too soft for me to hear which walls the sound was bouncing off of. I was fucked. I had no idea if I would walk right into a brutal mutilation. 
Each one sounded closer, yet remained untraceable. The anxiety was brain-melting, and I had to make something happen before my heart exploded. I removed my shoe and launched it overhead into the blackness. I knew which room it was moving through. The China Room. I made a breakaway through the opposite door and cleared a few rooms, my hand dragging along the walls to get a quick idea of their composition. I knew it had made it to the room with the shoe. Silence returned to conceal the beast, but this time I had a good idea of where it was prowling. I must have been in the space ahead of the ritual room by then, but honestly I didn't know. Sacrificing the shoe scored me some breathing room, but after my foot grazed over a few pieces of glass, I realized that one misstep, and I would give away my position. I continued to tread lightly until the sock on my left foot soaked up some cool water around the big toe. I was cornered. The divot allowed the entire room to fill with stagnant water from what I remembered, which meant a lot of fucking noise if I tried to pass through. Reversing direction was a no-go unless I felt like confronting demon spawn. I decided to jump it. I let off a little slack in my knees and threw my weight into my legs. Shit. The water tasted like dirt and rust. I nursed the top of my head with an investigatory rub from where it had kissed the ceiling and wasted no time scrambling out of the puddle. It had no doubt heard the fall, but getting frantic and losing my place was not an option. I didn't have the time to fully survey the rooms I moved through. I ran my hands over a large picture frame, some kind of knob protruding from a wall, a desk complete with a lamp, and as I reached the edge of the room, some kind of chair. I rounded the door frame and put my back and weight against the wall. I panted as quietly as I could, hands pressed to my thighs. I couldn't believe this shit was happening. Since stopping, the throbbing made my head wound feel a lot bigger than it was. I was unsure if I could keep going. I thought of all the people that loved me, and how I had traded them all away for a supernatural evil that I only got to see for a brief moment. I was so consumed by the allure of it all that I never even imagined what would happen after I pulled it off. The memories hurt worse than the pain. I had got what I wanted, even though I never knew what that was. An answer without a question. Only two things played in my mind. First, the visualization of bursting forth through the oak door upstairs and into air that didn't stick to my lungs. Second, the face, if I could even call it that, of my creation and whatever it was that squirmed around inside of it. Determination and defeat cycled around my mind and had me mentally seasick. I thought it was my turbulent state of mind that was making my head split, but then my skull felt two times tighter. I recoiled and flung my palms up to my forehead and pressed down to try to alleviate some of the pressure. What the fuck was happening? My previously empty sense of sight began to fuzz up and create an image. All of a sudden, my vision was crystal clear. I moved my hands down and waved them in front of my face, but they were nowhere to be found. I didn't understand. I whipped my head back and forth, but the image only slowly coasted forward. 
There were stalactites of pale sunlight oozing through the loose boards overhead, and they only gently illuminated the room I was seeing. I tried to orient my sight. There was a small, dilapidated wooden animal head mounted on the wall, a crusty desk with a piano lamp, and near the room's exit, a fucking chair. The same chair I had just fumbled past before rounding the doorframe. In the glint of shattered glass, I saw the reflection of pallid limbs in motion. They barely resembled anything terrestrial. My vision approached the doorway and slowly skirted its frame to observe a familiar humanoid shape sprinting away down the hallway. Me. When I could no longer see myself, I darted through an open door I felt with my left hand. My sight passed the door I had ducked into and continued forward. When the creature realized it had lost me, it slowed to its signature crawl. It was still on the move, scanning. It passed the study again, the one with the mirror, and I was treated to a full-blown, viscerally abhorring view of my satanic child. I wanted to vomit. Back and forth, I softly knocked my head against the wall, as if to stimulate some miraculous epiphany. I got control of myself and invited back my composure. It was nauseating to think in my body and observe through another. I quietly fell to hands and knees and began navigating my way across the floor the way a mole travels through dirt. My open hands surveyed to and fro until they reached something familiar. I wrapped them around the malleable warm fat of my extinguished candles. I was in the ritual room the epicenter of the basement. The cogs of cognition began to turn again, and I scoured the ground to find as many candles as I could get my hands on. I rose to my feet and returned to the walls. I scooted along the perimeter of the room and found all three doors. I popped myself out of a doorway and threw a candle down the hall I anticipated to be closest to the exit. I retreated back to a corner of the ritual room and waited. The creature took off, hunting down the bang it had just heard. My vision followed. Using the hazy light that trickled from above, I began scoping out the hallways and rooms the monster barreled through. It arrived at my candle and my sight was whipped back and forth. It was searching. It marched onward and I slipped out of the ritual room into the hallway and tiptoed to where the beast had come from. In order to make this work, I essentially had to daydream my way into my memories and ignore what the creature was currently seeing. I lobbed another candle and darted around an inconspicuous corner. The creature turned around and hauled ass towards the new sound. I was beginning to recognize my whereabouts. It scanned the room it was in. I was looking at paintings I recognized, overturned pots I sort of remembered. But most importantly, a few of my own footprints in the detritus. If I could lead it backwards along my footprints, I could find the staircase. It did it twice over of the room, but then turned back to the door it had just come from. It stood there, and we both stared into the murk. I knew I was being paranoid, but I swore I could almost make my shape out at the far end. But it turned around and proceeded through a door perpendicular to my prince. 
I gave a gentle exhale and traced the monster's directions. I felt the pots and picture frames with my sore fingertips. I passed the door it used and located the one where the prince remained. I tossed another candle. I did a complete backpedal through the door I had entered from and watched as the creature jumped from room to room until it came to a stop in a room that had an ornate wooden door frame. It didn't take any time to scout its surroundings this time. I figured it was getting frustrated. It popped a 180 and exited out the door it had come through. I waited for a bit and then tuned back into my memory to get to the new checkpoint. I felt the intricacies of the wooden door frame and slipped inside. This time I was on my own. I ran my hands along the walls and got to the door on the other side. I found the knob and subtly put some torque on it. It didn't budge. I tried with a little more vim this time, but it remained unmovable. I let out a brief gasp and dropped to all fours. With more movement than was responsible, I scoured the ground, my heart beginning to pound. I had never actually checked to see if there was a candle when the creature had stopped here. I was baited. I tuned back into my vision, and to my horror, saw it turn around and saunter back to the entrance of the room I was in. I observed a familiar person on the floor, revealed only by a sliver of light. I made eye contact with empty holes in my head. I witnessed my own face twist into grotesque trepidation as the monster crept closer and closer. I couldn't scream, only sputter pitifully. I was scared of losing everybody. I was scared of how bad it was going to hurt. But mostly, but mostly, I was scared of what I was going to look like watching myself as I die. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.